0: This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Of Acts, working our way through Acts, a good part of uh, 2013, and we took a, uh, took a little side trip to Romans 8 for a number of reasons, kind of freshly glance at Amazing Grace, and uh we're going to do that again today, just from a different point of view, from a narrative. Uh, and then last week, uh, Pete got us back into Acts, got us back into Acts uh, nine after being away for a little bit, and just did, he did a great job, just uh, giving the story of Saul. And I'm going to try to call him Saul. I always think of him as Paul because he's only Saul for a few chapters, the rest of the Bible, he's Paul. The guy changes his name. So if I call him Paul, you know I'm talking about Saul. Uh, but here he is, Saul. And he gave the story uh, last week from the first half of chapter 9 about Saul's dramatic conversion. Uh, Saul was, had risen through the ranks among the Pharisees, uh, as a rabbi, he was uh, an opponent of the church. He'd risen through the ranks. He's kind of an aspiring guy who made a name for himself uh, by persecuting the church. Matter of fact, we first meet him <clears throat> in chapter uh, seven and eight when uh, there is the pers- the persecution and the stoning of Stephen, and he oversees that. And uh, he had received the right. He had some letters, some papers that authorized him to go to Damascus and uh, to arrest Christians and to bring them bound back to stand before the chief priests uh, in Jerusalem. So he is on a persecution trip. He's on his way to uh, mess with the church, I mean minimally, just to make it uncomfortable and difficult for Christians, Um, maybe more so to actually arrest them where they could be brought uh, down to uh, Jerusalem and perhaps uh, beaten or Imprisoned or potentially even killed for their faith. There's already been a killing for someone's faith that we've already read about. So that's what he's doing. On the way, Jesus appears to him, the one he's persecuting. That's what Jesus says. Why are you persecuting me? appears to him, actually blinds him. He hears the voice of Jesus uh, calling him to uh, follow him, ultimately. And so the enemy of the church becomes a believer in Jesus. That, that's what happened in the first part of the chapter. Uh, we read that. Uh, Ananias uh, is a guy who comes and prays for him, and Saul receives his sight back. He's filled with the Spirit. And what we're going to read today is the first steps of ministry of this great man, Saul, who ultimately goes out, reaches Gentiles, starts churches, and then writes letters to those churches, and that's what the bulk of our New Testament is uh, once you get past the Gospels, the story of Jesus. So let's begin reading in verse 19 of chapter 9. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. That's speaking of Saul after his conversion. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength For they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and, and your account, your giving us this account of the great intervention of your grace to save. Saul and to use him and I pray today that as we look at his story and we see what you did I pray that we're reminded of our own story and that we ultimately look to you Jesus as the glorious savior the one who intervenes and rescues those who are unlikely to be saved by our perception and yet you do your work you do above what we could even imagine so we pray that you would stir our faith towards you as the savior We pray that you would work in bringing salvation to any here who need you today. And we pray pray that you would remind us all of what you have done for us and that you would give us big hearts, give us big hearts to see others experience what we have. By your grace, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, the story of Saul reveals the amazing grace of God. The grace of God is it's indescribable. It is beyond my ability to convey how glorious is the grace of God that would take a man like this, a persecutor of the church, and turn his life upside down. His life is a testimony to the effect of the grace of God. And we learn from his story that grace is God radically reversing the course of someone's life. Grace is God radically reversing the course of someone's life. I mean, that's exactly what he does in Saul's life, that he takes him from persecutor, of those who believe the gospel, to preacher of the gospel. See, after he becomes a Christian, as we just read, he immediately starts preaching the gospel. He had been persecuting people who believe the gospel, and now it turns, and he's a declarer of the very gospel that he was seeking to shut down and snuff out. He becomes a Christian, the person that he was actually seeking to harm to arrest and to silence. We see that that his life is radically altered by the grace of God that that though he is due the judgment of the Lord, God by his grace shows him favor and rescues him from his opposition to Jesus. In this early section we find here's the earliest work of the ministry of Saul who will later become Paul. This is the very beginning of what he does and we see that uh, the radical grace of God has reversed the course of his life so that he will now be an apostle uh, ultimately to the Gentiles to reach people with the good news that he sought to silence. So i want to look at two things. He's, He's in two cities here. He's in Damascus and then he's in Jerusalem. Same thing happens in both places. He preaches boldly, there becomes a death threat, more than a threat, a plot to kill him, and then he sort of narrowly escapes. So he's got a very adventurous life, and we see that in both cases. So both of them are evidence, though, of the radical reversal that grace has brought into his life. So i want to look at his radical reversal in Damascus and then the radical reversal in Jerusalem. It says in verse 19 that he was with the disciples at Damascus. So in Damascus there are now Christians, there are believers. This isn't a, a long distance from the time of Jesus' death and resurrection a year, maybe a little more than that, but it's still relatively new. And uh, so there are Christians in Damascus. There are disciples, followers of him. Evidently, they've formed some kind of a church or churches, plural, in Damascus. And it says that he, he joins with them. Uh, he's with them. And in verse 20, he immediately begins to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. So he goes where the Jews are. He preaches the gospel. He announces that Jesus is the Son of God. So here is Saul confessing that Jesus is not a blasphemer, as he previously believed, that Jesus is an imposter, as he previously believed, but Jesus is the sent one, the Son of God, the one who is God himself. The one who comes to reveal the Father, that's what Jesus does. The one who comes to make a way back to the Father, to reconcile people to the Father by giving his own life, dying on the cross and then being resurrected from the dead. He is the Son of God, the Promised One. He begins to announce this to people, and it is an astounding claim for Saul to make. Those who hear it are astounded. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. I mean, something is wrong with this picture. They're thinking, "Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem, of those who called upon his name?" HAVOC means destruction. It means that the devastation. Isn't this guy the one who is devastating the church in Jerusalem? And now he's standing up and preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. Isn't this guy the one who is destroying the people of God? in Jerusalem, the Christians. Isn't he the one who was totally opposed to the Christians? He was making havoc is the word. He was wreaking destruction wherever he was. So they can't believe it. And then they say, right after that, and has he not come here for this purpose? To bring them bound before the chief priest? Isn't he why is he in town? Isn't he in town to arrest people? He's got papers and authority that he can arrest Christians, and yet he's standing up and preaching that Jesus is the Son of God. And so they are shocked that Saul has been converted. One thing I find interesting in the New Testament is that Saul... Who becomes Paul evidently seems to be a guy that's kind of shocked that he's converted as well. He wasn't on a, he wasn't seeking Jesus. He wasn't looking for Jesus. He was going to persecute Jesus. And Jesus appeared to him and halted him and blinded him and said, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus revealed himself to him uh, when he was on the way to Damascus. So he wasn't this seeker of Jesus. He was an opponent of Jesus and Jesus grabbed him and arrested him, and saved him. And I think he always lived with an amazement of that. You can look in his later writings and see how he refers back to this time, that refers back to the fact that he was a persecutor and let, yet Jesus saved him. Like, for instance, 1 Corinthians 15.9. 1 Corinthians 15.9 says, Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, Because I persecuted the church of God. He views himself as someone who, even though he's a Christian, and this isn't some kind of low self-esteem or self-pity or wanting everybody to say, oh, no, come on, you're a great apostle. Oh, well, okay, thanks. He's not doing that, some kind of manipulative thing like uh, we might do. Uh, He's not doing that. He's just saying, hey, look, I can't even believe that I'm counted as an apostle, used by Christ to be an apostle. The other ones were followers of him. I was an enemy of his, and yet he showed grace to me. So he, he refers back to this. Or first Timothy one thirteen. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. I wasn't sort of you know sort of irritated with Christians. I was an insolent, an impudent, an arrogant opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You know, later in, another, in, in the pastoral epistles, he even refers to himself as a chief of sinners, that, that he wasn't... He didn't have this negative view. He wasn't self-focused. He was focused on Christ. So he wasn't, he wasn't an overly introspective guy that's always looking. I'm just calling a few statements that he made here. I could give you dozens of statements he makes about who Jesus is and what he's done. So he was very externally focused on Christ and others. But in these reflective moments of Paul, you see that he's, uh, he's aware of where he came from. You get the sense that Saul, later becomes Paul, never lost touch with what he was, and who Jesus was to save him. And I think there's something in that for us. I mean, here's the very beginning, where everyone's shocked. What's Saul doing preaching Jesus? Everyone's shocked that he's a believer. I think he remains startled by the grace of God. I was thinking about my own life. Is there a, is, am I startled to be in the house of God with the people of God today? Is there, is there an amazement at grace? They're all amazed that God would save him. They, actually, they don't believe maybe he is. But once they realize he is, they're, they're amazed that God would save Saul. Are you amazed that God saved you? I think this sense of awareness of new... Here's a new believer... I think there's a sense of an awareness of that, that overflows. I mean, he actually said in that First Timothy passage that the mercy of God overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So there's the grace of God touches his heart, and it just overflows out of him. Was there a time in your life when you were more aware, there was more overflowing grace? It was like, I can't believe I'm a Christian. This is amazing. Maybe someone was surprised to see you at church. Whoa, did you hear who got... Say Who became a Christian? Maybe someone talked about you at some point like that. There was, a, was there a time in your life when it was so much more amazing? Listen, I'm going beyond what's happening right here a little bit. I just want to, in this text, I want to just for a second draw a parallel that as we follow... Here's, here's Saul early on preaching the gospel, de, later describing it as overflowing with mercy... Um, But as he goes on, the the passages I read you, as he goes on, he never loses sight. He seems to grow in an awareness of the grace of God. And we can sort of think, well, as you mature, that's sort of historic. But I think real maturity is a growing awareness of what the Father has done for us. It's a growing, it's not like, well, that was in my past. I should be more amazed today at the grace of God than I was at the time of my conversion. Why? Because I know more about him. I know more about what Jesus did for me. You may have known very little at your conversion. But as you grow, there's an increasing amazement that accompanies maturity because there's an awareness of what he did for me. The same is true humanly speaking. So when you're a child, when you're a kid, you have no idea what your parents do. Those of you who are an adult or a parent, uh, when you were a kid, you had no idea. You just thought, hey, the world revolves around me, and I don't know, my mom does some stuff, my dad leaves and goes to work and does some stuff, and I don't really understand what that's all about, Uh, until you become an adult. And when you get a job, then you go, whoa, my dad's done this for 40 years. When When you find out how difficult work is, you're like, whoa, he's done that all these years, And uh, I had no idea what my dad did for me until I started working as an adult. Or you become a mom and you start having kids and you go, "Whoa, whoa, I had no idea. My mom did all of this for me. You become a, when you get teenagers, when your kids get to be teenage years, you're like, whoa, I had no idea what I put my parents through when I was a teenager. At the time, I thought it was just me, but now I look back at it going, oh my goodness, I probably got to go back to my parents and ask forgiveness now that I have teenagers and I see what it's like. You get that perspective. Why? Because you're maturing, and when you mature, you don't just look at yourself, but you look at what others, namely your parents, did for you when you were younger. And when we grow in Christ, we become more aware of the Father's love for us, the adopting love of the Father which brought us into His family. We become more aware of the sacrifice of the Son. We become more aware of the grace of the Spirit to wake us up and give us new life. You know, some of us can read a story like this and go, I can't really relate. You know, I got saved as a church kid, you say. I, I did, actually. I grew up in church. And you go, I, I look at this and go, well, that's great. I can see how mercy overflowed for him. He's, he's uh, overseeing executions. Uh, I, I never did that. Uh, I was a kid when I became a Christian. But the reality is that we have far more in common with Saul than we're aware of. The reality is that not that you were a church kid who didn't do anything really bad and then became converted, and then you're a converted church kid that didn't do anything really bad. That's not the story of the Scripture. Consider this passage. I was thinking about what Paul wrote later in Romans 5, where he describes the story of all of us. This isn't his testimony. This is, he's using we. This is us as believers. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. So you can say, I can relate to that. I was weak when I became a Christian, okay? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, okay. So we weren't just weak, but we were sinful. So we all had broken God's law, had rebelled against him, and we all needed forgiveness for our sins. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That's what we were deserving, all of us, us, Saul and us. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Paul actually writes there that we were enemies... He doesn't say, I persecuted the church, and you guys were just sort of neutral to Jesus. We were all postured as enemies. And I think for some of us, it, it's very distant that we've ever thought of that, that that was really my condition before God the Father adopted me and made me his son, before he showered me with his love, before he brought me into his family, before he gave me new life, before I was a friend of God, I was an enemy of God. Church kid. Church kid. Enemy of God, whatever your situation was. And so, really, we have far more in common with him. The Bible, elsewhere, Paul writes that, that writes of being blind. Before we're Christians, we're blinded to him. Before we're Christians, we're dead, not partially dead, totally dead. We were dead as Saul. Saul's not deader than we were. We were all dead, and God gave us new life. And so, we can read his story and be amazed, and I think we would miss the point if we just read his story and amazed, if we don't look back at our own story and say, the same God has shown mercy to me. The same Father has adopted me. The same Jesus has given His life for me. That we are recipients of amazing grace as well. And that that grace is to be refreshing. That grace is to overflow from us. That it's not just get out there and be a witness It's encounter the grace of God so that the mercy of God overflows my heart so that I can't help but like Paul or Saul in this situation, declare that Jesus is the Son of God. It just came out of him. Why? He's amazed at what God has done for him. And that's what God wants for us. He wants us to be so in tune, so aware, so in touch with what he has done for us and is doing for us, how great his love is for us, that it flows out and that we stay amazed by grace. That's Saul. There is a overflowing grace. Well, people ultimately believe that it's real. They're shocked at first, but they can tell he really is converted. Verse 22, Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he's demonstrating from the old te- what we would call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, that Jesus is the promised one. And so he's announcing to them, we all expected a Savior to come, we're waiting on a Messiah, he's come, he's Jesus. He's King Jesus, who is the anointed one to bring new life. Well, they don't agree with him, and uh, he's proving to them, but they don't agree. So when they can't be persuasive in the debate, what do they do? I just decide to kill the guy. If you can't convince them, kill them. That's what he does. So it says in verse 23, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. So he was so convincing, they couldn't couldn't stand up to what he was saying. So they said, let's just get rid of him. And what happens is he becomes aware of this, and his disciples... sneak him out of the city what verse 24 says was that the jews were watching the gates day and night so they're watching for him for an opportune time to nab him he must be hiding out in the city because he knows there's a a death threat and a death plot and so at night his disciples come to the city wall they're inside the city they find a hole they put him in a basket put him out the hole in the wall and they lower him on a rope and he escapes free so that's what happens what a reversal The one who came to Damascus with papers to arrest Christians is now being delivered in a basket out of the city in the middle of the night when it's dark. The grace of God has changed him and has called him to do something different with his life. What a radical reversal we see in Damascus. And we see the same thing in Jerusalem. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem... He attempted to join the disciples. So he goes back to where the church has started, where the apostles are located. Now, between his conversion in Damascus, on the road to Damascus, between his conversion and verse 26, when it says he went to Jerusalem, uh, here it doesn't tell us, it just says after a while, but in Galatians 1, Paul writes... Uh, retrospectively, about what happened. And he says it was three years. It's three years from his conversion to when he v- went and visited the apostles in Jerusalem. He also says there that he went to Arabia, so uh, which was near. It wasn't far from Damascus. So w- during this time in Damascus, you know, he he's, he's snuck out of the city at night. He may have gone to Arabia there. Uh, he, at that could have been when it happened. He could have visited Arabia. He could have been kind of based out of Damascus and gone to Arabia and came back then snuck out and went directly to Jerusalem. We don't really know. We just know that he was in a couple of places prior to going to Jerusalem. So he goes to Jerusalem, and when he shows up three years later, uh, look at what happens. He attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. Saul was the scariest guy to ever visit the church. This is a scary church. He is not invited to the Connect Center is not invited for warm cookies and conversation with a pastor at the Connect Center. Saul is not invited to the guest luncheon next week. Everybody is afraid of him because they don't think he's a disciple. And the last they heard of him three years ago, he's overseeing the death of Christians. And so nobody wants anything to do with him. And you can imagine why they're suspect. I mean, he could this could be like a spy deal, right? He's going to come in a Trojan horse, he's going to come in, infiltrate the church, fake that he's a Christian, he's learned some lingo, he's got a story, he's going to tell, kind of hang out, get the church database, find out where everybody lives, and then show up in the middle of the night at everybody's house and arrest them. I mean, that's what you would figure, he's a spy or something like that. Um, Or, you know, maybe they're just suspect because this story doesn't add up. You said you were converted three years ago. Uh, Why are you just now coming back here? Why didn't you come back immediately and meet with the apostles and make sure that what you're preaching is approved by them? Why didn't you come back immediately and apologize for what you did to us? Why didn't you come back immediately? Because this is the heart of the church and be at the home base. Why didn't you come back immediately and put in a good word for us with the chief priest? I mean, maybe you could have helped us if they knew that you were now a believer as well. Why didn't you do so? It's just suspect. Why three years they're probably wondering about all of this. Well, not everybody doubted and not everybody was afraid. Verse 27, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Barnabas. Now we've already met Barnabas in Acts. I want to say something about Barnabas already did and something that Barnabas is going to do, and both of those play into who he is right here. Here's what we learned back in chapter 5. In chapter 5, it says there's a guy named Joseph who donates a plot of land, sells it, and gives the proceeds to the apostles to feed the, the poor in the church. And it tells us that he had a nickname, which was Barnabas. And the nickname means Son of Encouragement. Now, the word that's used for encouragement there is the same word uh, that Jesus uses in John 15 to speak of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you just hear it kind of transliterated as paraclete, that he says that he is the son of encouragement. The word can also mean comfort. The Holy Spirit's the comforter. That's where we get that. So he's the son of encouragement. He's the son of comfort. He's the son of one who strengthens others. Encouragement means he comes alongside and he imparts courage. He comes alongside and he strengthens. The word can even be translated advocate, that he is the son of advocacy. That's exactly what he does here. Everybody's freaking out, afraid of Saul. Evidently, Barnabas hears Saul's story. He takes the risk to get to know Saul because he goes to the apostles and he represents everything Saul had done. So he tells his story. He takes the time to listen. He takes the time to encourage. He takes the time to strengthen. He takes the time to comfort. And then he advocates, is an advocate for him, with the apostles. This is what we learn about this guy. This guy is a big-hearted, full-of-grace kind of a guy. In chapter 11, what we're going to learn is that uh, there are some Gentiles who become believers in Antioch. And so the apostles in Jerusalem want to check this out. They want to send out a scout to see what's happening, because that's that's kind of crazy. Not only is Saul being converted, but it's kind of crazy that now Gentiles are believing in Jesus. So what do we do about this? So they send Barnabas. He's a big-hearted guy. He goes and meets these Christians in chapter 11, these Gentiles who become Christians, and this is how it describes him. When he came and saw the grace of God, Barnabas, saw it among the Gentiles, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. They sent a man full of grace. Not a man full of self righteousness. They said a broad man, not a narrow man. I mean, there was a lot to be concerned about. I'm sure everything wasn't perfect among the new Gentile believers. But we don't see Barnabas showing up and picking everything apart. Yeah, they're believers in Jesus, but you better, well, there's this going on and that and that, and I'm not so sure. No, he sees the grace of God working, and it says he is glad at what God has done. He does exhort them. So he's a he's a man of grace who exhorts them. He says, "Look, guys, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose." He calls them to faithfulness, but he celebrates what God has done. It says he's good, he's full of the Holy Spirit, he's full of faith. He's trusting God. God is at work. He does and the reason I'm reading this to you is he does the same thing with Saul. He sees the grace of God in Saul. He's full of the Spirit. He's full of faith towards God is converted an enemy This is good. And so he goes and he makes a bridge. He builds a bridge with the apostles. Look what he does. Like three verbs in verse 27. He took him. He grabbed Saul. We're going. He took him. He brought him. He escorts him to the apostles. And he declared to them. He speaks of the testimony. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus spoke to him. And he's been preaching the gospel in Damascus. He represents him. He intervenes for him. By grace, he stands with the scariest visitor in church history. He steps out in faith. He risks something here. It's crazy, isn't it, that he has to explain to them what Saul's been doing? I mean, Damascus, I didn't look this up. I should have done it at the break. I don't know how far Damascus is from Jerusalem, but it's travel. It's not like the other side of the world. It's right there. He's been a Christian for three years preaching the gospel, and, and evidently the apostles don't know the details about this Barnabas is having to represent it. In the Internet age, can you imagine that? If Saul, the persecutor, had been converted, his first sermon, it would have been up on Instagram pictures. He's saved. Look at this. You know, It would have been all over the place. It would have been news. Well, they're still spreading the news to him right now, and he they welcome him. Here's how we know that. It says in verse 29, he, I'm sorry, verse 28, he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. So the apostles don't halt him, they welcome him, he's preaching. And then in verse 29, he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. But they couldn't win the debate, so they want to kill him. That's the pattern. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So they took him to Caesarea, a, sea, a town on the sea. He evidently took a boat to his hometown, Tarsus. And we don't hear from him again until chapter 11. After those Gentiles get saved in Antioch, and after Barnabas goes and checks it out and says, this is great, God's at work, he then goes to Tarsus and gets Saul and says, come, come help me. So, but we don't hear from him for maybe seven or eight years uh, until chapter 11. Uh, Again, so he disappears here. Here's what is not just ironic. It's the glorious grace of God to radically reverse the course of someone's life. You noticed how it says that he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists in 29, verse 29. That's exactly what Stephen was doing in chapter 7 and 8. Stephen was disputing against the Hellenists and he's telling how Jesus is the Christ walking through salvation history through the Old Testament and they don't believe and so they decide to kill him and so they all so that they can throw rocks well get out of their cloaks and they take their cloaks and they lay them at the feet of Saul who oversees the death of Stephen who has been disputing with the Hellenists about Christ and now Saul has gone And he's been converted by Christ, and he now comes, and he stands in for Stephen. He who oversaw the death of Stephen is standing in the place and declaring the same grace in his spot. That is the grace of God, to turn a life upside down, to save an individual, and to call them to preach the gospel. I'm going to make two points of application today from the, from this text. That's what happens in the narrative. I want to make two points that I think derive from this text. And the first one is this. I believe this text is intended, among other things, to stir our faith for conversions. I really do. God reveals a lot of details about Saul that aren't necessary to reveal. He could have just said there was a persecutor of the church and he became a christian and we'd still say wow but he gives us these kinds of details that why did he leave he left because he was doing the same thing stephen was doing in the same area in jerusalem the guy that he had persecuted and overseen his death that kind of detail shows us detail shows us that god works in saving the least likely people from a human standpoint. They would look and say, this guy would be least likely to become a Christian. He's the chief or a chief enemy of the church. And so we read this and we say, if God is working to save and turn around the life of people like him, and then not count them out, not put them in a penalty box, but deploy them for great ministry, if he's going to do that with Saul, then he could save my neighbor. My hard neighbor that's not open to the gospel. He could not only save him, but he could open up a conversation between my neighbor and me to talk about the gospel. If God could save Saul, if God could save me, then God can save anyone. God can save Saul. He can save your neighbor. He can save your boss. You're thinking, no way. You don't know my boss. No, but is your boss killing Christians? Does your boss hate Jesus enough to kill Christians? If so, please see the police. Not, don't come up for prayer. Go, go call the cops right now if that's happening. But if he's not killing Christians, I think your boss is a better, more likely candidate than Saul. Now, I've already made the point there really is no likely candidate. Saul's an enemy. You're an enemy before you were saved. I was an enemy before I was saved. Billy Graham was an enemy before he was saved. Uh, Saul's an enemy, your boss. So I've already made the, the case that it's equal ground, but I'm just coming at it from a little bit different way and saying that here is someone that their life was radically reversed. Can I, he not reverse the life of your co-worker, the person who works for you, the person you work for? Can he not save your son or daughter? Your kids. Can God not intervene and save them? This is Jesus on display. Chapter 9 reveals to us that Jesus saves people, that He not only gives His life, dies for our sins, is buried and resurrected, He goes out hunting after people. And He will get an enemy who is who's cemented in His animosity towards God, who is on a pathway to destroy the church, who's not just into the world or something like that, but whose ambition in life is to shut down the work of Jesus, he'll go after that guy, he'll grab that guy, blind that guy, and save that guy. It's a revelation of the Savior who goes after people to save them and then use them for His purposes. I understand something's happening in church history, in redemptive history. I understand it's the biography of the guy who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. I understand that that's primarily what's happening in the narrative. But if that's all we get is a history lesson, and we miss the Savior and His power to save, then I don't think we've gotten all that this text has to communicate to us about Jesus is that he loves people and that he saves them. He can save your parents. My parents are old. My parents have been against God for years. He can save them. They, cannot, they will not thwart his purposes. He can save your siblings. He can save anyone. The biographical info on Saul, I believe, shows us the saving power of God. And so it calls me to expect and to believe and to trust God to do more. I, I read this section. I found this really motivating. I don't know if you have ever read commentaries. Maybe you don't even know what that that's a new term for you. A commentary is when a scholar Uh, A scholar in the languages of the Bible and a scholar in in some specific area of the Bible takes a book of the Bible and then kind of writes, usually verse by verse, explaining the language, the context, the history, uh, how verses and themes relate together. Kind of a commentary is just an explanation to help you understand the Bible. Sometimes they're dry. Uh, Oftentimes they lack a lot of application. Uh, So preachers can benefit from them or Bible students can benefit from understanding the text but they usually don't preach to you too much. You gotta, you're on your own for that one. Uh, but they do help explain. But John Stott, in his commentary on Acts, I thought he, he, he stirred my soul when he wrote about chapter 9. And he goes beyond just telling us what specific words mean or cultural thing, what's a Hellenist. And he, he goes beyond that. And this is what he says about Saul. He says, our overall impression has been of the grace of God which could be the cause of such great effect. He means Saul's salvation laying hold of such an obstinate rebel and completely transforming him from a wolf to a sheep. Luke's story, Luke writes Acts, Luke's story should persuade us to expect more from God in relation to both the unconverted and the newly converted. As for the unconverted, there are many Saul's of Tarsus in the world today. Like him, they are richly endowed with natural gifts of intellect and character, men and women of personality, energy, and initiative, and drive, having the courage of their non-Christian convictions, utterly sincere but sincerely mistaken, traveling, as it were, from Jerusalem to Damascus, as Saul was doing to destroy the church, rather than traveling from Damascus to Jerusalem, as he did to minister in the church. They're hard, stubborn, even fanatical in their rejection of Jesus Christ. But they are not beyond His sovereign grace. We need more faith, more holy expectation, which will lead us to pray for them, as we may be sure the early Christians prayed for Saul that Christ will first prick them with his goads and then decisively lay hold of them. What a thought that probably these people had prayed for Saul, who's now the scariest visitor to the church. What an answer to prayer. When we read this kind of passage and when we review our own story, the purpose of his story and our story is to draw us to the work of Jesus and be amazed at the power of God to save, and step out in faith, in prayer, in witness, in invitation, in whatever we can, knowing that God saves people. Is there someone that you've counted out? Is there someone you said, they're too far? They're too hard. They're not interested. Is there someone you've stopped praying for? You used to pray, but after a few rejections, and, oh, man, I don't even... It's a lost cause. Anyone you stop praying for? Or is there anyone that you've just avoided even thinking about or talking to the gospel because they're just antagonistic? They're just going to oppose you. Listen, God is a God of grace who radically reverses the course of people's life, who brings them from darkness to light, from death to life. And this room is filled with living examples. And so is the scripture, and in particular, this story of Saul. I think the passage stirs something else for us besides faith for conversion. It it stirs for us faith to be bridge builders. Now, I'm not preaching a Be a Barnabas sermon here, but I I do want to look at Barnabas a little bit in this passage because God works through Barnabas. God works his purposes. It's about God welcoming Saul into the church. It's about God saving and incorporating and releasing Saul into the ministry he had for him. But he does it through this guy, Barnabas, who's full of faith, full of the Spirit, full of grace. And and, and evidently, Ananias did the same in Damascus. Someone said, you know, but for Ananias and Barnabas, the whole course of history could have been different. Someone took a risk. Someone took a chance. Listen, when Barnabas gives up his lamb, that's a financial risk, perhaps. Welcoming Saul is a life risk. Again, if he's the Trojan horse or if he's a spy, or uh, he, could, he could be killed and, and put a lot of others in danger. But whatever, we, Barnabas took a chance. He recognized grace. He was moved by grace. He welcomed Saul, the scary guy. He built a bridge with a guy that... Everyone was afraid of. No one wanted to relate to that guest at church, that new person, that guy with a story. No one else wanted to relate with him, but Barnabas did. It would have been easy to avoid him. It would have been easy to avoid welcoming him. It would be easy to run from him. But Barnabas doesn't do that. He reaches out, he is stretched, he takes a risk, and he advocates and escorts him to the apostles and ultimately ensures that he becomes one who preaches from the church, with the church, ultimately ends up writing a good part of the New Testament and planting churches throughout for the Gentiles. And it just made me think about myself and about ourselves us that it, it can be a stretch to reach out to people that we find uh, maybe not scary like this. It says they were all afraid. I, I've never reached out to someone who could arrest or kill me for my faith, um, so I've never been in that situation. But we all have people or profiles of people that we're less than comfortable Reaching to that we that that grace would call us to take initiative that grace would say build a bridge that grace would say incorporate them into the family that grace would say help them come in and make a place for them and their gifts but we would say oh that scares me. That stretches me. I'm uncomfortable with that. And by the way, in churches, I find that this happens, the freedom to reach out, this happens much more in church plants when everything is new and everybody is reaching and the Lord is assimilating and building together. But in most churches, as they age and things solidify, this kind of attitude can, can become far less common. We get in a rut. We get familiar. We get our relationships Everything's still fresh here in the book of Acts. Everything's still live. Everything's new. But Barnabas steps out in faith to reach the person that everyone's afraid of, who comes to them. This is a guy who comes to them as a believer, or a professing believer, we should say. And he is, but he reaches out to him. So let me ask you this question. Who would you be, or profile of a person, who would you be afraid of? to reach out to and incorporate in? Who would you be limited? Who would you naturally keep your distance? Who would you say, whoa, I don't know about that one? Who would that person be? Maybe it would be somebody who's culturally much more liberal than you are. I didn't say politically, but it could be that as well. Maybe it would be somebody who you would look out and say, wow, that's a single person that, that lives a very different life. They profess Christianity, but they live a very different life than I do. I don't think we would have much in common. Or there's a family, and as I saw them and interacted a little bit, boy, they had standards very different than mine, very loose. I would call them loose. I would call them worldly. They were just very different, and so I don't want to get too close. I mean, that might rub off on me. That might rub off on us. They might hinder us. But would they kill you? Because that didn't stop. Someone to reaching out to Saul and incorporating him in. Are they a real danger? Are they going to arrest you? Come in contact with them? Are you going to be hindered? Or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe it's someone that's culturally very conservative. Met someone new at the small group. Met someone new at the church. I could tell instantly when I saw them, and I'm not going to give a description, but I could tell instantly when I saw them, whoa, they are conservative And we will never, we could never be friends. I know they're a legalist. How do you know they're a legalist? So you know upon seeing them and something about them externally, you happen to know that they're seeking to obey God to win his approval? You know that. But I just knew that would just never work out. They're too narrow for me. Jesus hated legalistic people. And I'm like Jesus. So I don't want anything to do with them. Well, Saul may have been more narrow in some practices than these folks were. And pretty soon, they're going to stop. Next chapter, they're going to stop eating kosher. They're going to loosen up on... It's one of my favorite verses in the whole book. I'm really looking forward to that. Kill and eat when he sees the sheet of food. I, I'm Just come here for that Sunday because I will be full of the spirit and bacon on that day to, uh, to assure you. Uh, so... You know, but he welcomed him. He welcomed him. What if it's not that? What if it's not their practices? What if it's something different, man? Somebody new came. They're a Christian. They're they're so intellectual, so theological. I just don't do theology like that. People who just always telling me what they read and uh, just all head kind of stuff, and you know everything. I feel like every conversation is a book report. I, I, I just, or you know. That person is, like, hyper-emotional. It's all about what they feel, and the Holy Spirit told them this. And I don't really do flaky charismatic. And so I can tell for a fact we're not going to relate. Because, like, I read the Bible, and I'm into truth, and they have experiences and emotions. And so they scare me. What if it's someone who's poor? I mean, nobody in the church would say, I don't like poor people, because you wouldn't want to sound bad, and you know God does like poor people. So nobody would say that. But would we run to someone that's socioeconomically at a lower standard than we are? Would we run to them and welcome them? Would we draw them into our relationships? Would we make a place for them? Would we build a bridge for them? How about the other side, someone who's very wealthy? I met someone new, I saw them get out of their car in the parking lot, so I instantly knew we're not going to be able to relate because of what they were driving and the way they were dressed and where I heard they lived and what I heard that they did for a living. And so we're intimidated, we're scared of great wealth. And I know they would look down upon me, never mind that I'm just now looking down upon them by judging them and saying they're going to be judgmental of me, never mind that. So I'm afraid, I'm intimidated by wealth, confidence, people like that. Whoa, that's not for me. I'm with the quiet servants, I'm not with that. Rather than, I'm part of the family here and they're new, I could be a bridge builder with them. And if everybody goes, whoa, they're poor, whoa, they're rich... What is their experience going to be? Maybe it's someone with a different background. I just know I cannot relate to that person. They came to the small group. I know I cannot relate to them. I said hi, but they are from such a different background. We are worlds apart. Welcome to the body of Christ. Well, they're a different race. Hey, it's 2013. Nobody's a racist. Yeah, I'm not saying that maybe you wouldn't look and say, hey, they're a different ethnicity, so I'm not going to talk to them kind of racist. But how about this kind? They're from a different culture, and I just think we probably don't have that much in common. And that's why the only people I've invited to my house look just like me in the church and not different. I'm not a racist. It's a matter of, you know, who do you, who do you connect with naturally? Uh, that might be racism, actually. They're a different age than me. Whoa, dude is old. I'm not inviting him over. That's speaking of me. That's what I'm, I'm rebuking some of you young people right now. Dude is old. Yeah, I don't think I could really hang out or relate with them and talk about the way things were during the Civil War and he was there. And, or, oh, they're so young. I'm not inviting the college kids over. I mean, I probably it'll be a little awkward. I'll say something uncool, and they don't want to be with me. And you know, uh, now if you're at my station of life and we're exactly the same—you're a single, I'm a single; you're an empty nester, I'm an empty nester. You've got three kids under ten. I've got three kids under ten. Then we can relate. Wow, that is so far from biblical Christianity. So far from how God moves to incorporate Saul through Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Maybe it's someone with a lot of problems. I met them the first time, and the first time we met, they told me their life story, and so I know the next time we meet, it's going to be follow-up emails, follow-up calls. The Lord's going to put it on my heart to serve them. I don't want to serve them. Maybe the Lord connected you with them because that's the very thing he wants is to minister to them. He wants you to be the bridge into the family of God. We're talking about people that are already Christians here. Now, that's what's going on here. Here's a guy that everybody's afraid to deal with for, I understand, different reasons. But we all have those kind of folks who are afraid to welcome. Maybe they're socially awkward. Guess what? Maybe you're socially awkward. Maybe I'm socially awkward. Maybe we all need to get over awkwardness and move towards biblical love. I I just don't find awkward. I just don't find that really in the New Testament as a category for how we're to reach out with people. That was awkward. Well... Uh, Biblical love looks beyond awkwardness and says the mercy of God. God has turned my life upside down. God has intervened. God did the same for me that he did for Saul. God radically reversed the orientation of my life. Why? So I could be a blessing of the grace of God so that when people come into this church family, I am a bridge builder. I'm, I'm, I'm building bridges, not erecting walls. What kind of walls? I just gave a bunch of them, the kind of walls of like, well, they're too liberal, they're too worldly, they're too legalistic, they're too old, they're too young, they're a different race, they're rich, they're poor, we're different, there's a lot of things. They're troubled, they're judgmental, which is a great one, because when I say that, I'm judging them nine times out of ten. But all of that stuff, those are walls. That means you come in and boom, you hit a wall. Whoa, didn't even see that one there. here, Boom, oh, there's another wall. Didn't really see that one. Instead of there's a bridge, come on over. Welcome in. Grace of God. Big heart. Welcome. I see the grace of God at work. Good man celebrating what God is doing. That's Barnabas, the son of encouragement. Come alongside with comfort. Come alongside with strength. Come alongside uh, with advocacy. I'll advocate for you. I'll find you. I'll help you find a way in. I'm an advocate for you. We've got a connection center out there. That is great. Really, this needs to be the connection center. It's great to have a smiling guy out there with fresh cookies. This is the connection center. We don't have just an official, one official bridge. Meet Rob, meet Jeff, come into the church. We're all the bridge. We're all the connectors, and I'm thankful for that. We're going to keep that going. But we've got to be this, and I think this is what God is calling us to do. I think this is God's word for our church. It is so easy to look at someone and assess them. Just assess them. I've got them figured out. I've got them in this box on this shelf. And that's not the shelf I'm on. I'm on this shelf. I'm not going to deal with them. I've got this. Oh, I've assessed them. They're a potential friend for me. I'll pursue them. It's just easy to assess. It's easy to judge. It's easy to build walls. It's easy to feel judged. And and I, I don't think that's what's happening in this passage. I think Barnabas is just overflowing with the mercy of God. God's overflowing him. I think God's calling us to, to broader hearts. As, as we as we plan to move to the center of town, there'll be broader exposure, and that, that'll be great, fine, wonderful gift from the Lord. But I don't think that's primarily what God's saying to us. I think God wants broader hearts. And I, I just had to take this opportunity because I was personally convicted as I looked at this example of Ananias and Barnabas and see what the Lord is doing and say, so I believe that Jesus wants to amaze me by his grace, amaze you by his grace, so that it overflows, so that when I encounter an unbeliever or a new believer like Saul, in either way, mercy flows out of me. Not assessment, not judgment, not sizing them up, not figuring it out, not putting them in their place in my world and how I'm going to relate to them, but overflowing with grace, Building a bridge, not erecting a wall. Saul, who is welcomed by Barnabas, by the apostles, writes a lot of the New Testament. In Romans 15, he wrote this. Paul later writes this. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. And he's writing into a situation, but I, I wonder if he thought about this. Welcome one another. He was the recipient of a welcome. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For God's glory. Big faith for conversions. That's what this passage shows us. Big faith for Jesus pursuing people. And he does that to Saul, and he's going to do that through Saul, as Saul plants churches, preaches the gospel. Big faith for conversions. Big faith for hard, quote-unquote, cases. Big faith for bridge building. Big faith for grace expanding. Big faith for the breadth of grace all around us. Big faith that even in the messiness of this would have been a very messy situation, even in all of this kind of stuff that was going on here, the grace of God has the final word, the big say. The grace of God is on display as Christ built his church. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.